Father God, we thank you for your word this morning, without which we would be a ship lost at sea, we would be a miner without a headlamp in the, the depths of the mountains, Father. We would be lost, we would be without hope, we would be without joy in our life if it wasn't for the scriptures. And so this morning, Father, we ask that you would open our eyes to them. Lord, because each one of us, whether we believe it or not, we are searching for greatness in our own hearts and minds and lives, Father. And I pray, Lord, that you, that you would show us this morning the path to that greatness so that our lives would not be wasted and that our, uh, our name would live on in Christ, both to our children and our children's children's father. That we would leave a legacy of greatness for those who come after us until you come again. So open our eyes this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we dive in, I want to tell you about a phone call I had a few weeks ago with a young man. Um, getting ready to graduate high school, uh, 18, 17, 18, somewhere in that age range. And, and here's what he said. And, and you young people, keep me honest here. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me know if I'm off track. I used to be in youth ministry. Uh, and so the first, the first time it's ever happened to me in my life the other day is somebody said, if you, do you know what this word means? And I was like, I have no idea which I guess is a sign of either old age, one, or out of touch with youth culture, uh, two, or, or some, some other thing. Uh, but it's the first time, usually I'm the one doing that to other people. Do you know this word? And like, it's usually a word that like, kids have just made up, uh, and it just replaces some other word that we have something for. Uh, but anyway, I was uh, chatting with his brother um, the other day on the phone, and he said, he said Pastor Matt, um, he says, I don't know what it is. I just feel, Pastor, that, that I'm going to be famous. To which I put the phone on mute, chuckled a little bit, took the phone off mute. Uh, and I said, brother, you got to calm down. He said, I don't know what it's going to be for. He said, like, I just feel like I'm going to blow up. Older people blow up doesn't mean, like, flames. and It means blow up, be well known. Uh, Twitter knows your name. TikTok knows your name. All the things. I got to thinking, you know, this, this, this brother uh, hasn't been walking. He, you know, he used to be in one of my youth ministries. And uh, he, just, he was just going on. And I just feel like, you know, I'm just going to be really well known for something. I don't know what it is, but I just feel like uh, I'm going to be well known. I try, to, I try to lovingly tell him he's an idiot. But to, to encourage him in that, 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 what he has in that moment, like when he desires greatness, right, like that, that is a good gift from God, that, that we have, uh, um, we, we, we've taken it captive, sin, nature has taken it captive, but right, the, the, the understanding that, that we are to do great things is a gift of God. We would be known for certain things is a gift of God, like take for instance, those who have been great in the Christian faith. Take D.L. Moody, known for evangelism, especially evangelism among the poor. He was known for this, and that's something to be praised and celebrated for. These brothers and sisters who have served Christ in such a way that, that God would be made much of, like that is something, uh, a greatness to which all of us should aspire. 
Because I think in Christian circles today, we say, oh, just uh, ignore that. That's sin. You don't want to be great. You should be lowly, unknown. And that is true for most of us. I don't know if you know this, but, but most of us, our great-grandchildren will not know our names shortly after we're gone. Who is your great-great-great-grandmother? What was she known for? What was her name? Most of us in this room, if we're being honest, we'd have to either think for a minute or look up a history book. What I was trying to tell this brother on the phone is that, listen, like, chances are what you're thinking of is moronic and you should stop pursuing it, but you should pursue not to waste your life. Tony Marita says this, he says, the gospel frees us from our addiction to ourselves. You see, before Christ redeems us, before Christ sets us free, we're often like crack addicts. Addicted to ourselves. We're like alcoholics, intoxicated with ourselves. We are not as interested in serving as in being served, in giving as in receiving, in pursuing God's way as in getting our own way, in being the least as in being the greatest. And we are certain the way to greatness is not by obedience that leads to death. We're sure that greatness is not being last and serving everyone else. We are so certain of the way to greatness that we need to do it ourselves. That this life of greatness, this life of well-knownness, this life of satisfaction is not pursuing a life of serious suffering. And yet, this is exactly what Jesus unfolds for us at the end of Mark 9 here. He lays down what the road to true greatness actually looks like. Greatness defined by God. So we're in the middle right now of, of Mark chapters 8 to, not, 8 to 10, which uh, theologians call Jesus' great discipleship discourse. What Jesus is doing in these chapters is turning upside down the value systems of our world. His teaching is radical. Now, if you've been in Christian circles a long time, you said that's just normal Christian talk. But listen, if we get back to the truths of the scriptures, we see that what he's actually teaching is radical and mind-blowing. It's no wonder that the homies don't understand it, is what the text says. Ours is a world where everything is about us. Everything's about me. Jesus died to free us from this kind of slavery. He died to free us to serve and to walk a road of true greatness, the road he himself first blazed. You see, the road to true greatness is paved with with four important truths that we're going to examine this morning, all of which begin in our mind and lead to an outworking and a way of life that honors God. Look at your scriptures, Mark chapter 9, verse 30. It says, They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. You see, true greatness looks like obedience to the will of God. Jesus and the twelve have passed through Galilee, headed south. You'll remember that Jesus has now set his face toward Jerusalem. That's where he's heading. That is where he will be brutally murdered on the cross. His heart and his mind are set on this, obeying the Father's will. 
He must suffer many things, and nothing will stop him from fulfilling this divinely ordained destiny. Yet, as he focuses on the cross, he also begins to take time to instruct his disciples along the way. But they, like us, still have much to learn. You see, Jesus wants to keep his movement a secret, right? He was, he was teaching his disciples. Like you see there, verse 30, he did not want anyone to know. He didn't want anyone to know that, that he was teaching them, that, that he, the Son of Man, Christ, is going to be handed over to men who will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. This is the second of three times Jesus will say this, first in chapter 8, now in chapter 9, and then again in the end of chapter 10. And his goal in doing this is to prepare his disciples for what's about to happen, for the days that are coming. And he says, look what he says. He says, verse 31, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. Notice the word here, delivered. Or perhaps your scriptures say um, betrayed. The question we should ask ourselves is, delivered by whom? Betrayed by whom? You see, there's multiple uses of this Greek word throughout uh, the Gospels here. Number one, it it means delivered uh, or betrayal by Judas. It's the same word used in Mark chapter 3, verse 19, in Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. The same word the ESV translates betrayed there. They translate delivered here. The end of the book, Mark chapter 14, he says, And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough, for the hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Again, talking about Judas coming in the night to betray Christ to the Romans. And then in Luke chapter 24, it says that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and will be crucified and on the third day Right, so in one aspect, we have this understanding of being delivered, being betrayed by Judas, human man, being betraying Christ, betraying Jesus into their hands. And yet, we must ask ourselves, is the whole reason we've gathered here some 2,000 years later simply because the actions of one man? No. No. You see, if, if that is the true reality of things, if we're here simply because one man had one moment of weakness and delivered Christ into the hands of sinful men, then it's by chance that we're here. So we must understand that Jesus being delivered over to those who would kill him, those who would brutally murder him, was all in the Father's plan. The Father delivered the Son. Isaiah 53, verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, Jesus going to the cross was more than the act of man. It was the act of God. Acts 2, 23 says this. It says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This is the writer of Acts, right? Luke telling us that, the, that them delivering over Jesus was all a part of the plan. God knew it was going to happen. Christ knew this was going to happen. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? 
So Jesus is teaching his disciples here at Mark chapter 9. He's saying that I'm going to be delivered, but take heart. It's not simply man's plan. It's God's. The implied agent of what Jesus is teaching here in Mark 9.31 is that God is the one delivering Jesus up. We must not forget God purposefully killed his son in order that he might not kill us. You see, the way to the crown, the way to greatness is by way of the cross. Salvation is ours by and because of Christ's suffering. Look at verse 32. Jesus says all this, and the homies don't get it. They don't understand the saying. And listen, they were afraid to ask him. This is not new information for the disciples. This is not new uh, of our disciples' reaction either. They do not understand. Time and time again, Mark is very clear with us that the boys don't get it. Now, we need to be fair to them, don't we? Because we now know what they did not know then. Only after the, direct, the, uh, only after the resurrection does everything that Jesus is saying here in Mark 9 actually make sense. You see... They believed a Messiah was coming to restore all things, to make all of life new, to take away brokenness with power. But a dying Messiah? They didn't understand it. A crucified Christ? Their theology didn't allow this. You see, the glorious Son of Man of Daniel chapter 9 is also the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, and yet they did not believe it because it did not fit into how they thought about God. They did not understand. They were afraid to even ask. How many times have you ever come across something in Scripture or in your own personal experience in life and been like, God, I really have no idea what you're doing here. What should your reaction be? Should it be one of, well, let me just put my head down and silently suffer Without understanding. No. No, they, they, they did not understand and they were afraid to ask. And in contrast, we should understand. Because Christ himself said that after he goes away, that he'll send one to make all things known to us, that with the help of the Holy Spirit, that we should not fear anything. You see, our Lord is not one who sits in the heavens unapproachable now. He is not one behind the temple and the holy of holies who cannot be approached. Rather, we should have no fear of asking Him anything. You see, this Savior, this Messiah, this Christ can be trusted. This Lord is approachable. When He speaks, we need to listen. And when we know God's will for our lives, like Jesus, we should obey God's will is always perfect. Obedience to the will of God is what true greatness looks like. I was thinking about this the other day, right? Because we have this understanding of freedom in our country that I think is often skewed of what actual freedom is. Y'all, y'all track with me? Let, me? let me let me give you an illustration. Who is more free? The man going the speed limit or the one ignoring the law? Think about it. Because oftentimes we say, the guy going 95 and a 35, he's doing whatever he wants, he's free. 
What happens if he's going and all of a sudden he sees parked on the side of the road coming up a cop? What begins to happen in his heart? Hit the brakes. Did he see me? Am I going too fast? You see, the man who is most free is the one who obeys the law. See, we're Americans. We don't understand that. The one who is most free is the one who obeys the law because the man who is going the law has no fear of the police officer sitting on the side of the road. There is no heart palpitations. There's no sweat that begins to beat up on a bald man's forehead because he's going the law. He's obeying. He's the most free. This is why I no longer get speeding tickets because I understand this now. You see, the road to true greatness looks like obedience to the will of God. Not only that, true greatness looks like service to others. Jesus and his disciples now arrive in Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. This will be his last visit here. And as, he be, as he's done previously, he begins to teach the twelve, private teaching. And in spite of what he has taught them so far, self-denial, dying to yourself, losing the lives for Christ's sake and for the sake of the gospel, the end of chapter 8, they aspire to be rulers and not servants. They remain deaf to what God has said about the road to true greatness. Serving others out of an overflow of gospel gratitude is still not sunk in. You see, David Brainerd said, It is sweet to be nothing and less than nothing that Christ may be all in all. And they did not understand this. Look at verse 33. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. You see, Jesus confronts them about what they had been talking about. They admit they had debated with one another about who was the greatest. Luke chapter 9 will tell us that Jesus, knowing the reasoning in their hearts, that he already knows what's going on is why he asked his questions. You see, matters of rank and recognition were important to the Jews of Jesus' day. You see, the nature of man and the times have not obviously changed all that much. Pride in the cult of personality arises even among the people who follow Christ. Let's take a little test here, if you will. A painful pride test. Answer these in your own heart as I ask these questions. Number one, am I upset if I am not praised for my work? Be honest with yourselves. Do I like and even long to sit at the head table in the seat of honor? Do I seek credit for what others have done? Do honorary titles pump me up? Is popularity crucial to my sense of self-worth? Am I a name dropper of those I know or at least pretend to know? Do I think I have something valuable to say about almost everything? You see, Proverbs 11.2 says that when pride comes, disgrace follows. But with humility comes wisdom. And James would add on that, that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see, these brothers are not just wondering who's going to come in third or fourth place. No, because if you're not first, you're obviously last. In the words of Ricky Bobby. You see, the greatest here that they're arguing about, of Mark chapter 9, he says, this greatest is a superlative sense. It's the, the number one, the top dog, the Muhammad Ali, the greatest of all time. And they're arguing 
After all, everything that Christ has just said, they're arguing about who's going to be number one. Who will be the greatest out of all of us? And Jesus knows this, and he asks them, what are you guys, what are you guys arguing about as we were on our way here? And they give the deafening answer of silence. Look at verse 35. And he sat down and he called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone would be the first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Notice Jesus' posture here. He sits down. This was assuming the, 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 the recognized position of the teacher. It implies that this would be a formal time. No longer are we simply chatting as we go. No, this is a formal time of instruction. They need to understand something. They need to learn and comprehend something. And so the teacher summons the pupils to gather around him and listen. Because an important lesson is going to be taught here. You see, with the heart of pride comes a desire for position. Jesus, in grace and tenderness, gives the twelve a simple proverbial maxim. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Notice, Jesus does not say, how dare you want to be great? You guys are pathetic. He does not repudiate greatness. What does he do? He, he, he redefines it. No longer are we under operating under the world's definition of greatness. Rather, we're operating under Jesus's. You see, be great in things that matter to God, not man, is what he's saying here. Jesus says you will only find real, lasting happiness and joy when you do serve someone else. Not because you have to, but because you get to and you want to. Jesus does say there is a position you should aspire to obtain here. This diaconos, deacon, a, a waiter of tables, one who washes others' feet or changes their soiled undergarments. You see, this work... That Jesus says, if you want to be greatest, you've got to do this. is not glorious in our eyes, is it? But oh, it is glorious in God's eyes. Here is a posture and a position worthy of heaven. Now notice, it doesn't mean that the first shall be last. He's not saying if you're the greatest, then you're obviously in last place. But what he is saying is that, that if you want to be first, then you must be last. This isn't a threat. As if we were to obtain greatness, he will somehow knock us down. This is a promise by which you become great. Because the road to greatness looks like serving others. True greatness looks like serving others. Notice what he goes on to do next here. Look at verse 36. He took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. You see, Jesus illustrates what he just said about a servant to all. What do you mean, Jesus? So he takes a child who's sitting there, stands him up in the middle of them, holds him in his arms. This would have been unusual in Jesus' time. Now, let's back up for a minute. Because in our culture, as much as we, uh, the, the current climate of our culture hates children, right? Like, like people are more willing that you would take a dog into a restaurant than a child into a restaurant. Like all my parents with young kids know what I'm talking about right now. 
But overall, like we, we generally adore children, right? Like think of another word or another scenario in which you would use the word adore. Oh man, that, that child is just adorable. Go to your boss tomorrow and say, you know what, boss? You're adorable. Right? So it's a word we only use for children in our days, right? It's because at the same time that we have this, our culture has this hate of children, that we also have this um, idol of children on the same hand. And yet this would not have been the case in Jesus' day. You see, the ancients had high infant mortality rates. They did not exalt the merits of a child as our modern cultures do. You see, because children would not often make it into adulthood, oftentimes they were disregarded by society because who really wants to spend that much time pouring into someone who's not going to make it past five years old? And so Jesus takes this child and uses him as an object. As an, a little child was an excellent example of the last or the least of these. And he startles his disciples by saying, if you receive one like this, On my behalf, you receive me. But wait, it gets even better. Because if you receive me, you receive the one who sent me. Effectively, here's what he's saying. If you treat well those who have no standing in our world today, children, lepers, AIDS victims, mentally impaired, physically disabled, the aged, orphans, widows, you will receive an audience with my Father. That's what he's saying. You see, Jesus points the way to true greatness. He says, die to self, serve others, and care for those no one else cares for. Receive them in Jesus' name, and you receive Jesus and his Father too. You see, the way up is down, and the way to get is to give. The way to be first is to be last. This is the way of Jesus, and this is what true greatness looks like. Not only that, true greatness looks like allegiance to Jesus. You see, at this point, the disciples aren't getting it. Oh, they're zealous. But it is a misplaced zeal. Look at verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and you know what? We tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, notice, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. You see, John came across someone uh, casting out demons. Notice, the same thing that they were unable to do earlier in this very chapter in Jesus' name. They did not know him. They don't know this guy. Who, who do you think you are? He was not part of the in group of their religious denominations, and so they tried to stop him because he was not following us. Us is a weird word here, isn't it? You see, John expected a word of affirmation, a, a good boy, a well done, an approval, and, but yet he was sadly mistaken. You see, Jesus responds with a strong command. Do not stop him. On the contrary, stop what you are doing, John. Why? Number one, Anyone doing these things in my name does so by the power of God. You see, it's an evidence of Jesus' call on their life. Do not try to hinder, rather help. Do not restrain him, rather rejoice in and with him. Because they are doing so by the power of God. Listen, what would that have for us to say as Baptist circles? Very much separatists, are we not? 
Stop that. Right? That's what we do. Just reading the scriptures here. Number two, whoever is not against us is for us. You see, Paul obviously understood this principle when he wrote in Philippians chapter 1, verse 16, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. You see, against us or for us leaves no room for neutrality here. See, here's somebody who, who they had no idea who this cat was. And yet this idea that this, this person who they had no idea who was was proclaiming the one who is Jesus. And they were all upset. Listen, what would this do to us denominationally? Now listen, I'm not saying we should stand up here and hold hands like I'm very peculiar about who I let preach behind this pulpit. Don't hear me say that. But what I am saying is that maybe we should be a little bit more gracious of those who we don't always agree with, but yet they love Christ. What would that do to our church? Look at verse 41. He says, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. You see, this verse illustrates the point that he just made. You see, whoever here is all-inclusive, this giving a cup of water to drink because of my name, like he's saying that those who are out there serving the streets, serving the ghettos, preaching the gospel, he's serving Christ. And he's showing his allegiance to Christ by serving Christ's servants. And he will never lose his reward. You see, uh, this, this reward, the smallest and humblest of acts of service done to others will be honored by Christ. You reflect the love and concern I have for the nations when you serve others. For those I came to serve and give my life as a ransom. Like this is, this is Christian talk. This is Christ talk. You see, service to others frees us. It gets our eyes off of us. And on to others who need the same Christ that you and I need. There is no person that we would, should be unwilling to share the gospel with. Allegiance to Christ will lead us to applaud and celebrate those on God's team who we may at times disagree with, even if they're different than us. Finally, true greatness looks like a fear of hell. You see, these nine verses here at the end of the chapter are, are, are great interest. They put front and center the cost and serious nature of radical discipleship. You see, Jesus is not playing games. They're grouped together and united by various catchwords here. Hell, salt, downfall. And several of these sayings are found in different contexts of the other Gospels. And yet Jesus taught these truths on more than one occasion as any good teacher would. You see, our Lord has the strongest possible view of judgment and hell. It is real. And it does last forever. You see, in this context, it serves as a warning and a motivation to follow Jesus in devotion and discipleship. And all of our talk today about 
getting to understand the Scriptures. It's the understanding of hell and condemnation and judgment that our culture pushes back against the hardest. But look what he says in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. This verse is a hinge verse between the the themes found in verses 35 and 41 and introduces what's about to follow. It picks up on this theme of a child and those who belong to Christ. You see, little ones here does not refer to children any longer, but rather to those who follow Jesus. He's talking about disciples here. If If verse 41 speaks of doing good to them, verse 42 addresses the opposite. If you cause one disciple to stumble, that's what he's saying. Feel the weightiness of what Christ Himself is saying here. If you cause just one disciple to stumble, it would be better be given a pair of cement shoes, a center block, if you will, and hurled into the ocean. Might we be kinder in our words and more gracious in our interactions with others if we truly believe this? You see, Jesus is still speaking to John here, and the issue is still pride. God's wrath is great against pride because it does so much harm to other people. If we do not rid ourselves of the sin that took both Satan and Adam down, we would be a stumbling block to others. And God would hold us accountable. You see, I'm reading this book right now called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And in it, the author says this. It says, sin offends God, not only because it bereaves or assaults God directly, as in piety or blasphemy, but also... Because it bereaves and assaults what God has made. You see, when we sin, we sin not just against God, but we sin those around us. Everything becomes broken. And Jesus is saying it's better that you'd be thrown into the ocean, homie, than to cause his disciples to stumble, to fall. Look at verse 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. You see, Christianity... Is a fighting religion. A saving faith is a fighting faith. It will engage the battle against sin with deadly seriousness. Oh, that we would not be flippant in our fight against sin. Oh, that we would not be lax and let our guards down when sin tries to enter into our families. And yet it is out of gratitude of life, new life that we have in Christ and the kingdom of God that we now belong. We pursue a holy agenda with passion and discipline. See, Jesus here gives us three hyperbole warnings of sin's dangers to others as well as to ourselves. Right? And we know that Jesus doesn't really physically mean cut your hand off tear out your eye or or cut off your leg because the Bible forbids this kind of bodily mutation. However, in no way does that diminish or negate the importance 
of what Jesus is actually saying here. Here's what he's saying, according to, here's what he said, according to as what he says that things we value supremely, like our eyes or our hands or our feet, should not stand in the way of eternal life. Eyes, hands, and feet are all inclusive of what we see, what we do, and where we go. As important as those are, it is better to lose them than to let them prevent you from entering into eternal life in God's kingdom. You see, evil actions from a heart that rejoices in sin rather than in Christ. Evil actions come from a heart that rejoices in sin rather than rejoicing in Christ. See, Jesus is not calling us to just simply physically cut off our hands and our feet and tear out our eyes, but he is saying that there is a real place called hell where real judgment will be poured out, real wrath will be poured out, real punishment will be poured out. Now listen, this should be glorious for us. Because for imagine for a moment with me, if such a place as hell doesn't exist. Imagine a God who would create such a world where people uh, can just simply get away with everything. You see, we rage in our society about about justice. And justice means that, that things would be made right, things would be set right. Imagine if God created such a world where there was no justice. What kind of God would that be? So the fact that God creates such a place as hell where he would pour out judgment is a good and glorious thing. And it should motivate us. It should push us into pleading with God to change the hearts of sinful men, of our families, of our children, that that he would open their eyes to who he truly is, that, that that they would be forgiven. This forgiveness wasn't free. It came at the cost of God's Son. You see, even you and I, if we're Christians, if we truly believe this, God does not simply pass by our sins any longer. He does not simply say, it's okay. Come on in. There was a price that had to be paid. That punishment fell on Christ. So what's what's he saying here? What's what's Jesus getting at here? What's he saying with these hyperboles? Here's what he's saying. He's saying there's a real place, unquenchable fire, a lake of fire and brimstone, an eternal fire, a furnace of fire, an outer darkness, and an eternal punishment. And only God has the power to cast both body and soul into hell. Therefore, let us be good salt. Look what he says, verse 49. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. You see, this salted with fire, this is a a manner consistent with our relationship to Christ. For unbelievers, it will be the perpetual fires of final judgment in hell. But for us, us disciples in Christ, it will be the preserving, refining fires of trials and suffering that mark this road to true greatness. 
the only place in the scriptures where this saying is found, this for everyone shall be salted with fire, only in Mark's gospel. You see, salt is good as long as it can serve its purposes. But if salt loses its purifying and preserving value, then it is worthless. You see, we are purified by the flames of testing and remain faithful to Christ. Our lives will have no preserving influence on this corrupt world if we fail to maintain the purity of our own lives. You see, perhaps in light of the disciples' argument about the greatest, in John's opposition to another brother doing the works of the Lord, Jesus draws one simple application from having salt in yourselves. Be at peace with one another. Be humble. Avoid stumbling. You're causing others to stumble. Don't fuss and fight over positions and statuses. Be a reflection of the God-given peace you have received from Jesus Pull for your brothers and sisters in Christ, not against them. After all, though we may play different positions, we all follow Jesus as Lord, are on the same team. You see, the path to true greatness is where it really matters in the eyes of our Savior. You see, true greatness looks like obedience to the will of God, service to others, allegiance to Christ, and fear of hell. I think if the church today would understand what Jesus is teaching here, we would be so free. Free from battling other churches. Our church is bigger than your church. Our church has this program better than your program. We would be free. We would be the church driving the speed limit, unafraid of the cops sitting on the side of the road. So I go back to the young man I was talking to on the phone the other day. I said this. I said, sir, I didn't call him, sorry, I called him by his name, but I don't want to. Anyways, I said, most of us live between two lives in the scriptures. On the one hand, you have Job, who suffered immensely, lost his entire family, killed in a day. Suffered greatly, all things, and yet he, at there at the bottom of his suffering, he realized that the Lord was still good. Most of us will never face lives like Job, lives of such distress and such suffering. And on the other hand, the other cat in the Scriptures who we will most likely never uh, attain to is the life of Solomon. All the wisdom in the world, all the women in the world, all the money in the world, he did everything. He wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, or at least it was wrote about his life. And here's what he said. It's worthless. Chasing money, chasing fame, chasing wealth, chasing jobs, chasing position, chasing statuses, it's all meaningless. That's really what I was trying to hammer home to the, to the young man on the phone. I said, you don't, you don't need all that like, like because at the end of the day it's pointless to follow uh, greatness as the world defines it is to in fact lose your life, not save it. And most of us live between these two characters, Job and Solomon. We'll never suffer as much as Job, most of us. And we'll never attain the other side of the equation to see that actually getting everything our hearts desire is actually meaningless. And so we live in the in-between state. Always either struggling on the one hand to see what God is doing in His providence of our suffering or chasing the things of the world, unable to see that they cannot alone fulfill us. 
And it's the scriptures alone which give us understanding to what true greatness actually looks like. This obedience to the will of God. Like, listen, church fam, we've got to be obedient to Christ's word. You can't be obedient to Christ's word if you don't know what Christ's word says. We've got to uh, be in service to others. Serving ourselves leads only to destruction. We have to be all in for Christ. Allegiance to Christ, to Him and Him alone. Listen, the crazier our world gets, and like, who, who, who here thinks that we're actually going like, to make a U-turn? Anybody? Okay. Here's the reality of it. Like, like societies operate between these two bounds. I don't know if you know this or not. Society always operates between two bounds of what it determines to be real, reality. And it's always ping-ponging back. The corridors and the histories of time will always pinging back from one side to the other. And so when a society moves outside the bounds of what is actually true in reality to Christ's word, one of two things happens. One, you have a revolution. Because enough people get together and say, this is ludicrous, this isn't actually how life is meant to be, and they revolt, and it gets pushed to the other side. Or you have revival, and God moves mightily in a land and changes people's hearts. History is, the quarters and the histories of time would bear this out for us, brothers and sisters. But while the world is over here in la-la land and make-believe and not understanding what it means to be a man, not understanding what it means to be a woman, unaware of God, unaware of God's rule and law and how life is supposed to be, we remain faithful. Always warning, always loving, always telling them of the judgment, the final judgment that is coming. Listen, a lot of us live like Second Peter. We give in to the societal pressures to say, God isn't coming. Things will always continue as they've always been. No need for alarmist. But listen, that's not true. You see, the finality of death should teach us that things will not always remain as they currently are. And thereby, we should be motivated by a fear of hell and allegiance to Christ, service to others and obedience to the will of God to give our lives to that. Point people to Christ. Love them well, even if they hate you. That's what true greatness looks like. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning. Lord, without your word, we would be lost. We would spend our lives chasing meaninglessness. Lord, we are so quick to make idols out of everything. Idols out of family, idols out of food, out of wine. Father, Lord, we make idols out of our jobs. We make idols out of our spouses. We make idols out of power and authority and statuses and greatness, Father. Oh, that you would give us a heart of obedience heart that is fixed solely on you, that you would free us up from the love of ourselves and give us a love of you. Only you can do that, Father. Only you can change the hearts and minds of men and women and children. And so we pray. 
We ask that you do these things. And we, we believe confidently standing on the word of God that you will do these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.